I have a complaint, O king. I bring it before your courts and your justice. I lay before your feet my suffering. King David, I ask for your ear and consideration. You who judge your people, judge now this crime. Hear me, O king, for my complaint is of you. And this is my protest, this is my complaint, King David, that on one dark day you stole the bride of your faithful. One dark day found you, Israel's great warrior king, far from the fields of war. As your men fought and died for you, you reclined. And as your leisure troubled you, you looked for new repose, going up to the roof of your house to take in your possessions, seeking rest and looking over a kingdom you once called thine, but now named mine. But your eyes fell on a thing fully outside your possession, the body of a woman bathing in the afternoon light, and the sun set on your heart as you sought to possess this one more thing. Who is she, you inquired? Bathsheba, the wife of faithful Uriah, who serves in your army. Did this give you even a brief pause, or was her name and relation merely a shadow to her form? Bring her, you said. And as king, your word became deed, and she was brought before your throne and unto your bed. David, you sought your rest as does the wayward child in controlling and consuming what is not yours. And you, king, traded your crown for chains, the ruler now subject to sin. But this is my protest, this is my complaint, King David, that on one dark day you murdered the innocent to save yourself from shame. Thinking your deed over and done, you sent Bathsheba home, your lust sated, but sin ever hungers for your throat. And in following days, your rest was disturbed once more with news. Your sin had borne fruit. Bathsheba was with child. And now you saw where the crown you mislaid sat. Your sin threatened your shame, unless. Here was the solution. You summoned faithful Uriah home from the distant battlefield. With a snake smile, you asked him of the war. You asked him of the men. You blessed him with gift and sent him home to enjoy the comfort of home and wife for a night. And David, you woke the next day pleased to once more be the victor in your war with shame. Only you found faithful Uriah had never left your home, sleeping in the place of your servants. The soldier unwilling to enjoy comforts his fellows in battle could not likewise partake. Stay another day, you put your arm around him with your second scheme taking form. And as the day unfolded, you gave faithful Uriah drink. You tried to poison his mind against thought. The night found him drunk with your limitless wine, and you once more sent him home to his wife. But the drunk man proved more constant than you, King David. In his stupor, faithful Uriah still made his way to the cold, hard beds of the servants in your house. So to cover your shame, you wrote out a detailed missive, commanding your general to send faithful Uriah to the fiercest fighting on the front and leave him there alone to die. Who was your messenger, O king? In whose hand did you place the execution? Your constant servant, faithful Uriah. He took his own order of death back to your war and faithfully died for your sin. 
And you mourned your servant by wedding his bride. You, King David, had now fully usurped the place of faithful Uriah. Once you were the best of us, the boy too small for armor who would not abide the raging giant of the Philistines mocking the God of Israel. You were the shepherd who would brave the sword and spear with your handful of stones and a mountain of faith. Once you were the anointed of God, hunted like a deer through the wilderness. When the world would say, curse the Lord and die, you responded, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? Once you were the noble and true king of Israel, protecting and saving God's people from their enemies, fulfilling his promise and commands, honoring the Lord, and his blessings poured down in abundance. But now, this is my protest. This is my complaint, King David, that on one dark day, you proved just the same as me. Please open your Bibles to Psalm 51. My goal for you this morning is to help you feel guilty. So we better pray. Lord, would you please, by the power and wisdom of the same Spirit that inspires your word, now use the preaching of your word to shine a searchlight on our own hearts so we will honestly look at them, see what's there, and be broken by it, and run to you, our Creator, who's been spending human history salvaging what we have ruined. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, my goal, like I said, is to help you feel guilty. Um, and feel shame. I know that is not what you came for. Uh, I bet none of you woke up this morning and said, I'm going to go to church today so I can learn to feel guilty. But that's one of the reasons we come to church. Now, as we just sang, that's not the end of the story, but it's part of the story. And there's all sorts of unhealthy, inaccurate sin, uh, guilt, and shame that we can feel. And we're going to try to differentiate between that and what we're talking about, but the Psalms that we're preaching selected ones through this summer are wonderful, helpful instruction about how to feel. Not just how to think, but how to feel. I'd say even more so how to feel. We're learning how to feel this summer. The Psalms are filled with feelings, expressed feelings. Feelings of joy and celebration and gratitude and contentment and feelings of despair and frustration and confusion and doubt and shame and guilt. And we've got to learn to be emotionally mature. That's, I, I think, the ultimate in growth. You can have intellectual uh, ability and advancement. You can have practical, skill-oriented advancement. But until your affections are mature, until your feelings are what God would have them be, you're not truly mature yet. The sanctification, the growth and holiness process has as its ultimate goal our hearts, our affections, how we really feel. 
And so we do come to church this morning to learn from King David after his horrific failure where he broke in one event half of the Ten Commandments. (laughs) Half of them. Adultery, murder, coveting, uh, lying, and having other gods before the true God, which is what all the commands get back to, and every sin gets back to. And so we are here this morning, I hope you're here, and are willing to say, Lord, would you teach me to feel guilt well, rightly? Would you help me to feel a right shame for my sin? Would you help me to do that? Because I believe unless you can get there, you will never get to true freedom. The shame and the guilt is not the end of the story. Thank God it could have been. But in his grace, he has not made that the end of the story. But it's a vital part of it. You'll never get to the glorious end of the story unless you get to the true shame and guilt that our sin has brought to us. And it's so hard, isn't it? I... I'm not good at many things. I'm really not, like two. Um, but I'd add a third, and it may be what I'm best at. I am an absolute master at self-deception, at uh, figuring out ways to soften the blow of my own sin. <laughs> I'm a genius. When I ponder the ways throughout my life, I have excused, explained away, blamed, rationalized, uh, spiritualized uh, my sin. It is astounding. I am just a genius in this way. And maybe you are too. I bet you are. Um, Maybe you're so good at it, you don't believe me when I tell you that. (laughs) But it's true. It's true. And the reason you laugh is because you know I'm right. And we're all in this together. And that is true. The Psalms teach us how to be discouraged and feel shame and guilt and to regret well. I know, I know, I know. Your football coach told you to live with no regrets and, and um, that regret should not be in your vocabulary. Yes, it should. Have you never done anything you wish you hadn't done? And now, obviously, we believe in the sovereignty of God and he's an incredibly uh, brilliant strategist of how to redeem what we've done. But that doesn't mean we don't have legitimate guilt. There's things I did 20 years ago that when I think about it to this day, I still go, oh, believe I said that. I, I don't think I've actually ever left a social setting where I haven't to some degree cringed in light of something I've said. I'm serious. On the way home, I invariably there'll be at least one thing, and I'm like, idiot. (laughs) Now, Donna is a wonderful Nathan in my life, my wife, who helps me be aware of those things even when I wouldn't be otherwise. And so my life is filled with trying to figure out how to get around this. But I want you and me along with you to experience the freedom of relinquishing all of that need to figure out ways around admitting my sin and go right at it, call it what it is, and run to the only one who can save me from it. Oh, it's evil when we do otherwise, but it's so hard, isn't it? We think regret is the worst possible thing. You ever see VH1 behind the music? Anybody ever see that show? 
I'm just an old man. Thanks, Steve. All right, Lane. Maybe that's not on anymore. Everything's on with the internet. But uh, VH1 Behind the Music is always, these show, they're fascinating, even though they're basically the same story. Rock band forms when they're teenagers in a garage. They labor at it, get nowhere, have a song. It takes off. Suddenly, in six months, they go from being nobodies to millionaires and famous and having everything they ever thought they wanted, and about a day after that happens, their lives begin to plummet into drugs and substance abuse and abusing women and all these things. But what's fascinating to me is they interview these old emaciated guys, right, who, who are chain-smoking and they're shaking from all of these things, and, and they say to them, if you had it to do all over again, would you do anything differently? And they always say the same thing. No, man, no, I do it all the same. Everything I wanted to, I yell some, everything, you wouldn't change anything. No, we need to learn to, to regret really well, really well, never in a way that debilitates and defeats, but to say, wow, what a fool I was to do that. Right? And that's what David does for us in Psalm 51. In light of this horrible sin, He's an amazing example of true repentance. True repentance. I mean, how hard is it to really see sin for what it is? You know, right across the street, there's just a fine pharmacy. I encourage you to frequent it, in spite of the fact that it had this, right? For fingernail polish. What? What does that do to your ability to grieve sin when it's used to describe fingernail polish? I bet outside the Bible you've seen the word sin written more than anywhere else on dessert menus. Usually to describe the the best thing on the menu, right? What is that teaching us? How is that teaching us to think and, and we've got all these, um, let's back up. We've, we've got all these politicians and athletes who get busted for things teaching us how not to apologize constantly, right? Look, if your apology ever has the word if in it, it's not an apology. I have uh, some examples of the, the ifs, right? Um, I'm sorry if I hurt your feelings. It's not an apology. I'm sorry if you were offended. I'm sorry you didn't get the joke. I'm sorry you were disturbed. I'm sorry you were upset. This this if stuff. Listen to Bill Clinton back when he said something about Mario Cuomo that um, made fun of his Italian-American heritage. And it found in a tape. He says, listen to this fake apology. If the remarks on the tape left anyone with the impression that I was disrespectful to either Governor Cuomo or Italian-Americans, then I deeply regret it. What exactly is he apologizing for? Um, it, it's not clear. I hear people say, that, that horrible thing I did, that's not who I am. Does it have anything to do with who you are? Anything? I mean, because we have a video of it. It's you. So it's, it's, and exactly what are you apologizing for if you mean to follow up with that's not me? Well, it's something about you. Listen to one politician. I wanted to acknowledge fault where such acknowledgement is appropriate. 
You just apply it where you think it might need to be applied. It, it's lacking any specificity. It, it's a terrible culture to try to learn true sorrow for sin. But that's where we want to get. So let's listen to the master. You will never hear a better example of true repentance than this. You ready? Psalm 51. To the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being. And you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then, I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise for you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O oh God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. Okay, what a fantastic example. May I exhort you right now to seek in your life to be a really good example of true repentance. 
to your spouse, to your kids, to your, your family, your friends, your coworkers. Own your sin. And in the fear and joy of the Lord, repent well as a model. We need far more good examples of true repentance like we have here. It's powerful what we have here. We have a broken, contrite spirit recognizing that. Listen to Jonathan Edwards. All gracious affections, feelings, or emotions that are a sweet aroma to Christ are are broken-hearted affections. A truly Christian love, either to God or men, is a humble, broken-hearted love. The desires of the saints, however earnest, are humble desires. Their hope is humble hope. And their joy, even when it is unspeakable, they can't even put it into words. And full of glory is a humble, broken-hearted joy. On this side of heaven, all our emotions as true believers and followers in and followers of Jesus should have a broken-hearted joy that is at the heart of it. This side of heaven, before all things are made new, we are broken in our hearts. I hope you came to become more brokenhearted this morning in light of your own sin and the sin in this world. That's what we're here for. And the first thing we need to do following this example is call sin what it is. Acknowledge it. Don't figure out all sorts of euphemisms, you know, ways of explaining around sin. Sin has been euphemized. It's been killed off with euphemisms, right? it, It doesn't even exist in our thinking anymore. We don't even have categories to explain real sin and evil when something like September 11th happens because we so seldom in our society traffic in that sort of terminology and concept. But we Christians should say, no, sin is real, evil is real, and it it lurks in my own heart. And we need to acknowledge it like David does. What does he say? Verse 3, I know my transgressions. Five times he says, my, 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 not blaming it on anybody. He's owning it. He sees it for what it is. He acknowledges it. And he uses all three Hebrew words you would want to use if you wanted to describe sin exhaustively, comprehensively, fully. And the, the three words occur right off the bat. He describes his transgressions, the breaking of God's law. He describes his iniquity, the pollution, the corruption, the filthiness. And he finally describes sin, missing the standards, missing the marks. All three ways in Hebrew of describing sin comprehensively, he uses them right off the bat, and he says, It's mine. These things are mine. They belong to me, no one else. And he says it's a a matter of my heart. This is something that was true of me uh, from the very beginning. And it's a continual awareness he has, verse 3, right? They're ever before me. He realizes there is a God-centered way of defining sin we must arrive at. In verse 4, against you only you have I done sin and done what is evil in your sight. He realizes he has no defense except to run to God, to be his defender. His condemnation is just. The wages of sin is death, as we've said. And David is here saying, that's what I deserve. I don't deserve a lesser penalty. 
I don't deserve to get off scot-free. I don't deserve to manipulate who God is in my mind so he's a God who doesn't really care about my sin and judge it because after all, I'm made in the image of God and so are those people I sinned against and so of course he cares about it. Of course he does. It's against God and he's got no one to blame but himself because of verse five, inborn corruption that belongs to no one but him. And he realizes, as we saw last week in Psalm 19, God gives amazing revelation of who he is externally and internally, and he ignored it to go down the path he did. He rejected it. He suppressed the truth and unrighteousness. And as it says, I didn't follow what you love. I didn't follow the things that you have revealed to me. I followed my own way. And we've got to start by acknowledging sin for what it is and stop blaming everybody else but ourselves. I, I'm telling you, I'm a master at this. Ask my wife. She has, she has borne the brunt of this more than anybody. I've got this ability. Even if I do something horribly wrong, I, in, in three seconds, will figure out a way to blame her. It, it's astounding. It is astounding, Right? It's, it's no different than Adam, the woman you gave me, right? And ultimately blaming God. And, and we've got to own it. We've got to call it what it is and say it's mine. It doesn't belong to my less than perfect parents. It doesn't belong to my personality type or DNA. It doesn't belong to some, something someone else did to me a long time ago. All, all those things can give lots of opportunity for my heart of sin to be unleashed. But don't blame it on those things. If you want to find the origin of your sin, look here. You know, the culture is constantly telling us to look within. Well, go ahead. Go ahead. And it tells you to find the God within. God wants you to find the sin within. And, and call it what it is. And until you do, you'll never be free. You will never be free. You'll just keep going down the road of manipulating everything until you own your sin. And I have no doubt that David here is so helped by Saul's bad example, right? Saul disobeys God. And, and his faithful Nathan, Samuel, comes to him, and he right off the bat just lies. I did everything the Lord said. That's a strange way to greet his friend. And then he lies about it. He denies it. He comes up with a better plan than God. He spiritualizes it. And then when he's backed in the corner, has nowhere to go. You know what Saul does? All right, all right, all right. Would you bless me? Bless me. He doesn't get it. Oh, maybe he feels guilty. Maybe he feels bad. But it's not the kind we're talking about that really sees sin for what it is and owns it, realizing that I can't blame it on anybody else or anything else. All these sins, I remember... Hearing, I was reading the bios of the, the U, women's USA soccer team, incredible athletes. And one, one of the questions was, what's your most embarrassing moment? And one, one of the women's soccer players was, said, don't have one. I have no shame. I remember reading that, and she said it so proudly, right? It, and that, that's supposed to be how we should be, right? No. No, before God, when we see him in his holiness and see our sin for what it is, we should 
have shame, healthy shame that sees sin for what it is. And it's something in our very nature. It's not a freak event that just invaded my life. No, it comes from my heart. That's what Jesus says, Matthew 15. Out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, and slander. Out of the heart all these things arise. The heart is deceitfully wicked, the Bible says. Who can understand it? The Bible says in the Ten Commandments, don't covet your neighbor's house. It doesn't say don't rob his house. It says don't want to. Right? Hebrew says make sure your character is free from the love of money. It doesn't say don't rob banks. It says don't want to. Have a hard attitude of righteousness, not sin. And good, you know, things like righteous forgiveness come from the heart too. Those aren't primarily external actions. They start in the heart. And if you get nothing else out of this morning, get this, please. Sin is defined in light of who God is. We, we are obsessed with defining our problems sociologically, psychologically, practically, experientially, and we have such a hyper-validation of immediate subjective internal experience that the idea that we answer to a judge whether we feel guilty or not is a really hard thing for us to believe. We don't determine reality. God does. The judge does. And so we need to align our thinking with his. Sin is related to God. That's what he says, right? Verses two through five. Against you only you have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Sin is the final light of God. And I've got a problem with God. This doesn't mean he didn't sin against Bathsheba, obviously, or Uriah, her husband, or the entire nation. Of course he did. Of course there were horizontal effects. But what he's saying is, relatively speaking, my problem's with my creator, with the God who made me. Because the reason it's wrong even to sin against humans is because they're made in his image. And so I've got a problem with God. He's the one I have to answer to. And yes, we've got to do everything we can to make restitution and make things right for our sin on a horizontal level. But it all must start with getting things right on a vertical level with who God is. That's our real issue we've got to deal with. It's amazing how I can be so much more concerned about the horizontal rather than the vertical. But God is the one we have to answer to. And our joy is to be found in God and his ways, and that's David's problem, and that's your problem, and it's my problem. Isn't it amazing that there is not one detailed reference to sex or sexual sin or lying or any of the specificity of his sin here? This is not a treatise on how to deal with particular sins. This is about our heart toward God that leads to all sin. A rebellious heart that thinks I and my ways know better. I know better than the creator, and that's the problem. I've sinned against God, and it's not even the practical ramifications he's concerned about. He never mentions in detail any of the specific sins, and he never asks God to free him from the practical consequences of his sins. That's not the main point. He says, free me from what? Blood guiltiness. I, I want my guilt before you, God, to be alleviated when whatever else happens... Would you please free me from the punishment of sin? You, the righteous judge, will bring my way. That's his concern, and until that gets right, nothing else matters. And yet we're obsessed with all the practicalities and the ethical realities and the moral realities when it's fundamentally a theologically God-centered problem. We're dead in our transgressions and sins in which we once walked. 
That's our problem. And we've got to deal with that problem. And when we do, when we see sin for what it is, call it for what it is, define it in light of who God is, we will then run nowhere else but to God himself for the solution to this. We run to him. We run to God, the Savior, who alone can save us. And do you see what this leads to for David and for us too? It leads to praise. That's what he finally, uh, this, this willing heart that he asked for, it, the, the requests are so dramatic and radical because the need is, and the God who saves can do things like that. He doesn't say, you know, little help. And I've said that a million times as a kid when the ball gets away. Little help. God doesn't give you a little help because your ball rolled away. He needs to give you a heart transplant because your heart is dead before him. He doesn't give you a leg up, a little help, a little moral advice. A little No, he saves us because we're dead in our transgressions and sins. And David asks, look in verse 12, for a willing spirit. He asks for radical things. It's amazing how comprehensive his ask for forgiveness is in light of how comprehensive his sin is. He says, free me. Purge me, cleanse me, make me white as snow, renew me, restore, create a new heart, fix all of this. And where does he go in light of a God-centered definition of sin to a God-centered definition of salvation? And it starts right off in verses 1 and 2. Have mercy on me, O God. O God. Why would he ever even think he deserves that? He doesn't. But he knows who God is. According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. It's who God is that helps him see his sin for what it is. It's who God who's, who leads him to run to God alone for his salvation, this massive, wonderful, extravagant salvation God offers. And he does, he saves him. And he doesn't just save him so he's okay, he saves him so he praises God and tells others of his greatness. And he even then prays, oh, and restore what has been damaged among your people. The city of Zion is how it ends. He says, restore what's lost. Establish the city of Zion. And the way God does this is by saving us through himself, through his own son. 2 Corinthians 5, for our sake he made him to be sin, Jesus, who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The only one who truly embodies all that David is praying for here is Jesus, the sinless one who always was clean before God and righteous before God and delighted in his ways and then because of him, we can be declared righteous in him and grow into conformity to his image. And then we start with contrite and broken hearts before God. And then our sacrifices, our offerings become pleasing in his sight. But only then. That's how it has to happen. Galatians 3, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. The consequences of David's sin in many ways remained in his life. But do you know something glorious happens? He even loses this first baby that Bathsheba's pregnant with, but the baby she has after that becomes King Solomon who builds the temple and is even in the line of David. That's the line of Jesus. 
this adulterous relationship. He eventually marries her, and they have a child that becomes one in the line of Jesus the Messiah, the one who saves us from our sin. Wasn't it glorious that God doesn't uh, often save us from all the consequences of our sin. We feel those through this life until heaven. But there are times he gloriously redeems things that are even out of our sin. We can trust the God who does that. The Westminster Confession says this, there is no sin so small, but it deserves damnation. So there is no sin so great that it can bring damnation upon those who truly repent. No sin, no matter how big your sin. No sin, no matter how small your sin. That's not the focus. The, The question is, do you really see sin for what it is? Do you really believe that this God of steadfast love loves to forgive sin? He he loves to do it so much that he sent his son to take our place so that we could be forgiven and set free and even declared righteous in him. Jesus is the one who fulfills all of this for us. Let's cling to him like never before. Lord, would you help each of us? Thank you, Lord, that the Holy Spirit knows exactly where each of us is and exactly where each of us need to go from here. For those who have spent their lives explaining away and trivializing sin, I pray you would bring it home in full force today, just what it is. For those who feel crushed by it, I pray they would be crushed in the right ways so that they don't ever wallow in self-pity or despair, but run to you, the Savior of steadfast love. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Name. Amen.